The Cat and Cloud Coffee Podcast is sponsored by Steeped Coffee. Steeped Coffee is a new brewing method that combines specialty craft coffee into a single serving bag. You don't need a machine. You don't have to make a mess. All you have to do is add hot water wherever you go. Each steep pack is individually sealed. It's nitrogen flush, so it stays fresh. And it's got this special full immersion filter. And the filter is ultrasonic sealed, which means it's sealed together with no glue or no staples. So there's no weird stuff floating around in your coffee. Steeped is a benefit B Corp. They ethically source all their coffee. Their packaging is fully compostable. And they believe that business should be done without compromise. You can get your hands on steeped coffee packs at steepedcoffee.com. That's S-T-E-E-P-E-D, coffee.com. Asking your local retail stores to start carrying Steeped or having your favorite roastery reach out and kind of get in touch. If you're in Santa Cruz, come on by any of the Cat and Cloud locations. We have it there for you. Basically, they're just doing their best to change the coffee industry, make your life more convenient with their pre-portioned, pre-ground innovation. So tell all your friends. Wow. Testing one, two. How's that? You're you're good. Yeah, all right. That's, that's natural. We'll probably boost you up after the fact. Oh, okay, because you're, you know, you got that ASMR thing going on. <laughs> Wait, I just missed that. The what? ASMR? I don't know what's that. Oh, oh, gosh, ASMR is like the weirdest phenomenon that you've never heard of. So, it's an acronym. It stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, and it's a term that's used to describe those maybe weird, like tingly feelings that you get like maybe if someone was giving you a shoulder massage or rubbing your head or like whispering into your ear really quietly and it's this relaxing almost euphoric kind of thing so what's going really hard right now on youtube is people are making these asmr videos so a really popular one is cranial nerve exam so it's like a first person <laughs> it's like someone comes in like hey welcome really soft-spoken oh welcome have a seat today we're going to give you a cranial nerve exam we're just gonna check your eyes check your head it's a whole thing mm. you got the perfect voice for that do i know yeah <laughs> <laughs> all righty so no it's i can't get into it is okay a, a auto sensory autonomous sensory meridian response meridian response asmr i have to come up with a mnemonic in my head to remember that Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Just go down the, the YouTube wormhole. You can waste half your life. It'll be, oh, it'll be gone in an instant. I'm totally going to do that. 2.30 in the morning when I wake up and can't go to sleep. That's the time to do it. Yeah. It'll relax you. I know. I, I just have to remember to turn off the audio or to put in my earphones so I don't wake up my wife. Oh, you have to do headphones. Yeah. Because they'll even say at the bottom of the video, for best experience, please use headphones. Oh, really? Use headphones. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. They'll use like binaural mics, so it'll sound like they're literally right beside you. But yeah, no auditory sensory. Uh, <laughs> it what that that is a whole nother area to go and talk about. Well, that and roasting. We'll get to that. We're there. I, we're I have a story. <laughs> we're in we're in Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're Nevada is the sensory state. We're in the sensory <laughs> state. I'm here with Jen Swenson. Hello. Grace Woo Freebush. Bill Kennedy, owner. Howdy. How do you call yourself? Owner, proprietor, CEO. You know, I fill out those landing pages online. You know, requesting information. I always put head honcho. Head honcho. Because it just doesn't, you know. Well, because there's no box for that, and I don't know. That's just my way of not fitting in a box. How You're about just, Big Kahuna? 
Yeah, that works too. Big boss. <laughs> Big hoss. Hoss. <laughs> boss oh, hog. You know, we're close enough to the old, the old Ponderosa. It's <laughs> <That is> true. <laughs> Bill Kennedy, Big Hoss Boss at the San Franciscan <laughs> Roaster Company. We're here. We're picking up a roaster that you built us. Yes. We're seeing the factory. Do you call it a factory or a warehouse or a factory? Yeah, it's, no, it's yeah, it's no, full manufacturing. Yeah, no, we we don't just store stuff here. We you we build it. it. Yeah. Well, you guys saw mm-hmm. uh, just like from flat sheet steel that we source domestically. It's all American steel. So in uh, let's start in your office because y- your office is really intriguing to me. So I'm sitting here and uh, we got. One, two, three, four. How many radios do you have in here? So I was waiting for you to finish counting so I could tell you. (laughs) Twelve. Okay, twelve radios is how many I have. Is it? No, I don't know. You said twelve, so I said twelve. Oh, you were waiting for (laughs) me. I don't know how many I have. Anyway, um, now you're going to three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I think you're off by one we got we got 11 we got 11 radios here yeah. when, what what's up with these radios like what's the oldest radio you have here uh the oldest radio is early 1920s freed easman uh it was actually the the radio to have as a high-end hoity-toity radio um had eight tubes and which meant it had eight batteries to drive each of those tubes so that it could produce enough audio in the very small horn speaker that came with it um, and it was made back when uh, most homes didn't have electricity. That's why all the batteries. How long would the battery last, you think? Okay, that's a hard... I depend on how long the radio was on. Okay, I, I don't know. That's kind of a cop-out answer. But um, uh, long enough for people to spend an awful lot of money on that radio. I mean, it was like a big screen TV back then. It was big-time stuff. It was big-time stuff. So yeah. why does a dude who builds coffee roasters have radios from the twenties? Um, you know what? I love old stuff that was built, uh, well, one to last, and uh, built in such a way that it was so decorative that people just still, even today, like looking at that stuff. And uh, so yeah, uh, a lot of the radios don't work yet. Uh, if I ever retire, then that's what I want to do: is restore these old things. Um, some of them do, and it's fun to listen to sh- the shortwave and and uh, the local AM stations, which is what they get. And then you got these fans here that are like a hundred years old. So I have a I have an 1898 GE brass blade fan, the kind that you don't stick your fingers in when it's on, <laughs> or if you do, it will only be the well, it'll probably be the last time you do it because you'll re- have a very memorable experience. And uh, but I like it because one, it still works. It looks beautiful. People walk in, they admire it. It was built here in the United States, and it is still a very decorative piece that everybody loves, and it works. And it's 120 it's, yeah, years old. So yeah, it would be 100 and actually 121 years old. Yeah. And you're saying that you'd like to surround yourself with neat stuff. I well, I've always been someone. Even as a kid, I, I loved antiques. I loved, I loved things that had an, an intrigue about them. Uh, all the antiques have a story. You just have to imagine what its life looked like through all the hands that touched it through its existence. 
and um, and the history that these things saw. I always, I just was, I've just been fascinated with all these old things that are cool. You've been into this stuff even before you were building coffee roasters. This oh, is like a lifelong yeah. thing. I was always kind of. I remember asking my uh, grandma, uh, you know, is that an antique? Is that an antique? Is that an antique? And um, of course, you know, to her, a lot of the steps that were antiques to me were not antiques to her because, you know, she had them in the Depression or whatever. I remember she had a whole set of Depression era glass glassware for things and but yeah no, I, I've always been very interested in in old American stuff interesting my mom in her bedroom growing up she had a bunch of furniture that she inherited down from the family it's like this really old bird's eye maple vanity and dresser and a bed set and everything it's shit you would pay a lot of money for today and she just started using it again. She couldn't wait to get rid of it. She was like, I hate this stuff. I can't wait to get rid of this stuff. I told her that it was cool, and that kind of blew her mind. She's like, this is cool? Well, <laughs> it's interesting you say that. But well, I mean, my, my love of history, when I got married, my wife's family is originally from Kansas. Well, they immigrated t- from Germany back in the 1840s, and her great-great-great-great-grandfather went to the gold country in California, and he made a few bucks, and he moved back to Kansas and bought some ground and uh, built a one-room house and bought some furniture. Well, um, you know, long story short, they hid during Quantrell's Raiders and all that sort of stuff. And But I got a videotape of Pasha's, my wife's grandfather, and he told me the family history. Um, it is still the farm and the house. Well, it's on the, their third house that was built in 1919. Still in the family. They're still farming it. And there's history going back to the 1850s there. And I absolutely love that. But they still have the that original bed set that my wife's great-great-great-great-grandparents purchased. So back in the one-room house where they had the bed, a dresser, and a table, and they hung up the chairs on pegs on the wall. And uh, then after the Civil War, when the uh, county built the roads, the house was too far away, so they hitched up a team to the house and drug it up to the street. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And it was there until the 1880s they built the second house that was there, and then in 1919 they built the third house that was there. And that's the current house that's there. Anyway, I just love those kinds of stories. You're, like, just, an, you're like an heirloom kind of guy. I I guess you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would make a great T-shirt, wouldn't it? I think so, with your face on it, for sure. I know, <laughs> heirloom guy. So how did you get into, like, we're sitting here, how did you get into building coffee roasters? You were a school teacher and a principal. How the hell does that transition work? So uh, I was a school teacher, then I became principal, and uh, one of my brothers, uh, uh, he saw this coffee house, and he thought, you know what, that looks like a fun business since the early 90s. Worked out a deal, bought the business, and it happened to have like the sixth roaster ever built by Coffee Purr, uh, which was the uh, original builder of that brand of San Franciscan roaster. Uh, and as a principal, I needed uh, some downtime and uh, recharge time. And uh, so he and I would roast coffee. And we'd go, you know, the coffee's roasting here, the beans, and it's mesmerizing. And just, we enjoyed roasting coffee. 
and you know I, I would say that we weren't necessarily roasting at that time we didn't know a lot but we knew that when the beans were oily it was time to drop them out before you had a fire so this was you know right in the thick of early second wave roasting and uh, you know a few years later I, I decided I to get a lot more serious about it so we we actually in 2003 I went to go s to uh, Agtron and took a class with Carl Staub not far from here and uh, that's when my eyes opened to uh, the art and science of coffee and boom that was I was hooked at that point what made you want to take it more seriously uh, that it was more than just you know uh, I never drank coffee uh, at all until you know when I was a school teacher and I would uh, you know I was single and I'd go have breakfast ham and eggs and grits with my little hole in the wall places and uh, drank my coffee with my cream and sugar and but that's that was the thing after that though when I discovered that coffee had s had such a marvelous complexity to it um, that kind of hit and uh, I decided I wanted to go into the coffee business you know myself um, I left uh, public education and been you know after 20 years and uh, worked with uh, you know, I have four brothers and one by one, each each of my brothers went into the coffee business. Me being the oldest and wisest, I was the last one to get into the coffee business. And but I worked with one, two brothers, and about the time I was ready to start my own coffee retail coffee house, picked a sweet little spot in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Are you listening, Tyler Duncan? Hey. It was a great spot. It was, you know, kind of in the college town. They had Salmonella's uh, little restaurant. Cool names. Salmonella's? Sam and Ella's. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's still there, too. If you're in Tahlequah, go to Salmonella's restaurant. <laughs> you will love it. Uh, anyway, though, but so I'm, I'm okay, okay, all my brothers had San Franciscan roasters built by this little place called Coffee Purr. The Purr stands for Processing Equipment and Repair, located in Fallon, Nevada. All right. Well, about the time I was ready to buy my roaster, the owner at that time said, okay, I'm done building roasters, so I'm, you know, I don't have one. Over it. Yeah, that was like... So my wheels spun a little bit and uh, made a phone call three months later. Um, see, I'd moved, I'd moved from California to Arkansas to work with one of my brothers there and uh, learned uh, the retail side of things and then uh, moved back to Fallon, Nevada because I bought this little company called Coffee Purr. And I remember seeing this huge metal building with old manufacturing equipment and holy cow, can I do this? I mean, I have a degree in industrial management, so I'm, I knew what a lathe was, and I knew what some of these things were, but... So wait, where's the jump? You're, you're, you're going to have a coffee business, then you're going to buy a roaster, but then all of a sudden you buy the company that makes the roasters? <laughs> what were you thinking? Um, it sounded more fun to build the roasters. Okay. And, uh, I mean, coffee retail stuff... I mean, I'll, I love that, but there was something intriguing about building the roaster itself. 
And, uh, you know, my undergraduate degree being industrial management, I always had an interest in that sort of thing. Hadn't really used it before. Never had a business before. I actually, no, I hadn't. So, so yeah, but, uh, yeah, I kind of jumped in. I probably jumped in uh, seriously underfunded and uh, fully, uh, well, let's just say that it was a, it was a good prayer time every day <laughs> just to get on top of life and doing stuff i mean it was a bootstrapping experience but you know again i i can totally identify with a lot of our clients that come in because a lot of our clients are total bootstrappers and kickstarter people and you know so what what did you, you know. take possession of like the dude said he wasn't building roasters anymore so it was it equipment, machinery, and the know-how, kind of? So uh, it was seriously underdocumented. Um, the original guy, uh, Sherman Dodd, uh, he, he, was, he, di- he didn't graduate high school, but he had a mechanical genius about him. And back in the day, you know, he, he at one point worked for ProBot, uh, left ProBot, and went to work for himself refurbishing roasters. Uh, for three or four years, he refurbished roasters, the old classic European Gotthot, Petrosini's, Probot, Samniacs. Learned what he really liked about the roasters and also learned what he really hated about the roasters, especially with cleaning and maintenance. And at one point, uh, he uh, scrapped three quarters of a shipping container full of roasters that he got from Europe because they were irreparable because of the cast iron cracks and breaks and so on he uh, decided to build his own so he built uh, a prototype uh, SF25 roaster and uh, then he built the first started building the first one and the second one and third one and the third one's actually just south of here in uh, Minden Nevada uh, the first one is in Minneapolis at the Dunn Brothers flag, flagship first store that they have downtown. Anyway, it's just uh, he did that for until uh, the middle 2000s when I came along, and I bought the company from him. And I uh, figured I'm a, I used to be a middle school principal. I can put up with anybody because he was kind of a cranky old fart. Yes, I said it, Sherman. <laughs> cranky old fart. And, uh, no, he'll admit it. Uh, but, yeah, we worked together. Uh, he gave me six months of his time, and I was able to take four and uh, let him go, and the rest is uh, history. What Did you have any idea of what you wanted to build besides or how you wanted to build roasters or what you stood for aside from – there's a million ways to build anything, right? You can make a million different kinds of well, roasters. Well, okay, so what I didn't do is go in with a boatload of money and buy a whole bunch of uh, high-end, you know, top-of-line manufacturing equipment that can, you know, slapdash thin sheet metal pieces together really fast so you can screw them together and, you know – send them to someone who ordered it two weeks ago. We did not do that. What we did do is say, okay, I told you about the fans and everything like that. Uh, All these old heavy-duty things that were built to last, I said, that's how we're going to do that, and we're going to protect that. And we're always going to be that, 
company that overbuilds a roaster, overbuilds anything, so that it will last not just your lifetime, it'll last the lifetime of your kids and your grandkids, and it will last well beyond your years. That's what I wanted to do, but I also wanted it to be the best in the world. And there's a certain way to do something that reacts well with the coffee when it comes to just a simple metallurgy and heat transfer via conductive and convective heat flow. And we build it that way so that the artisan craft roast master can have probably the broadest palette, if you will, available of heat applications to uh, create flavor notes in a marvelously complex organic and come out with um, an infinite number of brilliant roasts using the same coffee. That was my mindset. I said, this is what we're going to do. Um, I don't have to answer to, to accountants. I don't have to answer to private equity people, you know, or angel investors. I can build it right, and that's, that's what I'm going to do. And, yeah, it's probably going to be and is now probably the most expensive roaster on the market. But, like I said, we don't compromise on manufacturing methods or materials. So assembly is obviously all done here. Steel from the U.S.? It's from the U.S., and, and the reason, well, for a number of reasons. It's not just, just because it's, the, you know, it's American steel, although I prefer American steel. American steel, uh, the iron is, ore is mined here. Okay, so you have the, the ore is mined, then refined, and then melted, and it's all very, very consistent um, because it's the same ore going through. If you, get, if you get steel from overseas, you get steel that came from, you know, scrapped ships. You, everybody has seen those ships, you know, on YouTube. They, they pull them up, and then all these workers go out with their torches and cut it into pieces. You know, so the siding and the engine and, the, you know, a machine tool, you get all these pieces of steel with different hardnesses and they throw them in and they melt it down and they roll, roll all this steel, you know, uh, re repurposed steel. But the thing is, when you work with American steel, whether you're welding with it or whether you are machining it, the nice consistency of the American steel make it, it makes it a whole lot easier to weld and or machine. You don't have various hardnesses, you know, so, I mean, you'll be machining along a piece of steel and then, I don't know, some really hard piece that didn't get completely blended with everything else will come through and you, all of a sudden your machine tool shatters because it ran into a piece of steel as hard as it was. And that happens a lot with foreign steel or guys who are welding it. You know, the steel is, has impurities in it, and it's like popping and spackling and making a mess and, you know, hard to get a nice, nice, beautiful need uh, bead or good penetration with, with, you know, good solid connect, you know, melding that steel together. Anyway, we're not going to argue with our materials, okay? We're going to make sure the materials are going to be totally compliant and moldable. It's like an artist. What's an artist going to use? 
An artist is going to use the best tools and the best canvas to paint the most beautiful picture, right? So yeah, they don't want a canvas that's going to have a, a weak spot that they're going to poke a hole in it when they're painting. And are there uh, compromises that come with using like lesser quality? Because I'm just trying to paint a picture for people who don't even understand what a coffee roaster is, right? So you've got this big machine with a rotating drum and coffee's in it. It's turning around and it's 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 a it's a hunk of metal. And then you hear like some people are like I only roast out of cast iron things, and some people are like j- on these almost like toy things that you can get for extremely cheap from from wherever i'm trying to equate it to something like um i don't know like like an automobile i don't know if it's the right grace what's something that people could grasp i think right away of equipment in cooking and baking i know that for me it's made a huge difference to have um quality equipment and the difference that it makes in the product outcome is huge and you wouldn't know it until you've tried all the different kinds from the cheapest no-name thing you can pick up at Target to the commercial-grade Wolf convection oven that needs to be installed specially in your house house with special wiring and whatnot, even in terms of stand mixers, I think. I mean, that's that's the analogy that comes to me right away. I just crossed that threshold with my pots like <laughs> several years ago. <laughs> well, because, you don't know, you grow up skateboarding and all we do is eat fast food and we don't cook. And I see all this cooking where I'm like, why the fuck would anybody pay this much money for cookware? Until I started cooking, I'm like, oh, yeah, because that stuff's haggard. It's just a l- much less enjoyable experience. So let's talk about cooking. I mean, a lot of us have been to state fairs. And you go to these guys, and you, you, you see these guys with all this stainless, waterless cookware. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And these guys say, you can cook vegetables with no water in this and keep all the vitamins and everything. And I'm not selling stainless cookware, but I'm going to talk about stainless steel as, as material uh, that conducts heat. And what they're going to do, these these people talking about how well their pans work, is they're going to say, and there are seven layers of copper and aluminum and this and that. And he, he's highly conductive metals that are layered between the stainless steel. Because when it comes to heat transfer, you don't want hot spots on one spot and cold spots on another. And so they use these highly conductive metals to to diffuse the heat. I'm going to use the word diffuse a lot. And it's not like, you know, pulling the the fuse out of a dynamite stick. I'm not talking about that kind of diffuse. (laughs) Okay, it's called diffusion. And it's basically taking a concentrated source of heat and it evenly spreading out through anything, any material. And so what we've done, and I'll just go jump right into, like, our drums. We use a mild steel. Uh, We could use cast iron. Cast iron has excellent heat diffusion characteristics. I mean, that's why the the old school roasters had a lot of cast iron. But the old school roasters were going to be primarily first or second wave styles of coffee roasting. 
The problem with cast iron is so brittle that it has to be cast in very thick chunks, which means it's going to retain a lot of heat. And so, especially if you want to play with a profile and you as, at, toward the end of the roast and you want to say, okay, I want a 30-second, I want a minute, I want a 90 seconds, I want two-minute development, whatever. The cast iron and its thickness is going to retain so much heat, it's going to get, the cast iron is going to tell you what the, your development time is every single time. And, it's, and you're not going to have a lot of flexibility. So with mild steel that we use, it's a low-carbon steel. It's, it's, it's ductile, malleable, so it can handle heat expansion contractions without cracking like uh, cast iron. It also has excellent heat diffusion characteristics, uh, and it will evenly diffuse the heat. It will also lose the heat more quickly. Uh, what, and then what we've done is find a balance between heat retention and uh, heat diffusion and then the, its ability to release heat so that if you want to slow down a roast at a certain point and develop that, this steel will let you, to, let you do that. And that's what I'm talking about, a broad application of heat applications uh, to, to manipulate the heat transfer conductively to this, again, marvelous or complex organic coffee. Some, in, in my opinion, a lot of manufacturers came up with the double wall concept. Well, I think this was the manufacturer's response to inexperienced roasters who kept burning the snot out of their coffees. Oh, let's put a double wall. It will have a, an insulation barrier of air between two thin walls. And what does that do? Yeah, it does mitigate the conductive heat transfer, okay? And it does help you not scorch the outside of the bean, all right? But what it does is it doesn't give you the uh, full ability to, uh, uh, the full range of conductive heat transfer, which in nowadays with the honeys and the naturals, that, con that initial conductive heat transfer for these coffees, and that's where you lock in these, the sweetness you know, of, of some of these awesome coffees. And if you are intentionally buying a double-walled drum, again, in my opinion, you're just not going to get the conductive heat transfer. i got to say something, though. There will people be people that disagree with me, and you are perfectly welcome to do that. Um, funny thing that I've learned, well, as an educator, you know, different, different brands of roasters will speak to different people. And so if someone makes a business decision that they're going to buy, uh, you know, uh, uh, okay, I, I'm not going to say any name. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Roaster X. Roaster. Whatever they are. Yeah, that would be a cool T-shirt. Roaster X. Roaster X. Hell yeah. It, that'd be a great podcast, too. Roaster little sci-fi. Is that your Roaster podcast? X. We can help you set it, it up. It could be. Th it could be Roaster X. You might as well be Roaster X with that smooth, buttery voice. You could come on every I could. night. I could. We should trademark that, is. but we better make sure there's no gigantic corporation that has that. I think we'll be okay. Yeah, we don't want to <laughs> get. <laughs> we don't want to double up on that one. Yeah. Oh God. Okay. Who brought that up anyway? Um, so anyway, I will say this: that uh, my predecessor, what he loved to love to say is that everybody is a guru. And so, um, yeah, yeah uh, follow, follow the, the person who speaks to you 
and helps you to roast coffee that's going to uh, speak to your clients um, the best way. Um, I'm still convinced that our roaster naturally is is going to do that best. Um, but you know, when it comes to business decisions, you have to do what's best for you. And I'm totally free and happy for people to do that. But I do know that even used San Franciscan roasters go for sell for more than what most other roasters sell for brand new. So what kind of people are looking at those roasters then? You're placed kind of at the at price wise the top of the market and you have a almost you have very specific things that need to happen in the production, a very specific way you want to build roasters, specific materials. Who ends up using a roaster? You know, like it, it's, it's the kind of people who want to approach artisan roasting like a chef does. Okay, uh, we've heard of, uh, there, there's a, a manufacturer in France, they, they make these uh, uh, saucepans called Misen. Uh, they also make sharp knives. The metallurgy behind their decisions and how they make things uh, is very, very important to them, uh, but they produce, again, some of the most expensive cookware that's out there. Um, but there's a reason for it. Now, I can go to Target or I can go to Wally World or whatever and get something that was stamped out in, you know, another country, you know, with, uh, well, I, I just another thought. Everybody worries, and, and rightfully so, the farmer, right? How many people worry about the factory worker in other countries? I'm just going to leave it there, if, but it is something to consider. And you guys saw our people here, and we take good care of our people. But our people are also high-end craftsmen who care what they do, and they produce that type of high-end, you know, uh, type of a product that a chef would really, really appreciate. Someone who knows how to transfer heat to get, you know, all the way through from the yellowing, the, the Maillard reaction. You know, people who know this stuff, they want to have a lot of control, and then they also want to have this broad palette of heat application ability, conductive and convective heat transfer, so that they can really play with the flavor nuances. But also, uh, uh, not only flavor, play with the flavor nuances, but make some of those nuances less nuanced and more poignant. You know, more of a pop on the 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 palate of your client. And so that's the kind of person that looks for our stuff. And the nice thing too is that yeah, we you know the, some of our vendors you know that that sell us our motors and, and gearboxes, they laugh at us because they're the same motors and gearboxes that they sell to the local mines here in Nevada. It's like, holy cow, are you sure you want to use this motor? I mean, you could buy this other thing for a lot cheaper. Um, no, we want this thing to be a tank, and we want it to be reliable, and we want it to just, you know, be like a fully armored energizer bunny <laughs> on steroids okay so yeah but that's also how we build it that's a it's, it's kind of like the same thought process when we were opening the business and we had a really strong idea of what we wanted to do and there were a few things that we wanted to do right away and one of those things was profit sharing and the second big thing that we wanted to do right away right at the gate was offer a good paid vacation policy so people could leave 
and everybody we talked to was like, you probably shouldn't do that. That's, that's for the big kids and you guys are the small kids. So just chill out and you can do it four years from now, three years from now, right. whatever. And I remember one day we were sitting around and Jared got out a piece of paper and he's like, let's just look at, let's just look at how much it actually costs. Like how much money are we going to pay back through the profit sharing program and how much money are we going to pay for vacation time versus an estimated amount of money? Cause we've been in coffee shops since like 2001. Mm-hmm. So we know that business of coffee retail really well. And we know what turnover looks like and what training costs look like when you bring in new employees and the quality loss you have. There's always a dip with someone new and and that uh, ability to get them up to speed. And there's not just their time, but the time of your trainers and your educators. And that that's money, too. And running those numbers and through those estimations, it was actually in our favor to start off doing those things. If we, we had a, a, pro, a projection of retention, like okay. we, we think if we do these things, we can have this lifespan, our average employee lifespan will be this. And offering these things up front actually makes it cheaper for us over the first couple years than not offering them, having people get over it, leave, and the cost of retraining and rehiring and all that stuff. So we went to do it right away. And that's kind of the whole, you know, um, buy nice or buy twice where roaster is a huge expense. If you own a company like ours, aside from maybe you're buying a building, it's probably your single largest ticket item that you buy. You know, you have a roaster and you have espresso machines and one or two other huge things. And it's like a, a big chunk of money staring you in the face so i understand why it's enticing for some people to be like oh cool i'm just gonna get what i can like do you have people that call you that were you in the past like i'm a school teacher and i'm oh i'm I'm entering into this world like what do i do i can totally relate with with all of these people that call and so i mean i have a natural empathy because i've been there and i've done that and i've gone on ebay i'm like you know, why why the heck are these you know cheap Turkish roasters so cheap? I mean, why can't I just get that? But it, you know, there there were people in the industry they would just shake their heads and say, "You'll be sorry." And so I just okay, yeah. I well, I trusted people. It wasn't because I necessarily knew. However, the first roaster I ever roasted on was a San Franciscan. But when I did have the opportunity to roast on let's say, less expensive models from manufacturers who their first selling point for the roaster is their price and not the roaster characteristics. Um, it's very appealing, you know, especially if you are bootstrapping it or you're, you're cashing in uh, a retirement thing or you're, you're just counting your pennies. Um, yeah, it, there's, a whole, there's a whole lot to the piece of equipment that you need to consider and time and time again I get calls back from people that said I am so glad I, I can't believe or, or they had they started their business with a less expensive roaster I'll just I don't like using the word cheap even if I mean it but I'll just say less expensive there you go and they're like oh my gosh 
and they're roasting the same coffee out of the same bag. I said, I had no idea that this coffee would do this. I had no idea. And they're just blown away by the flavor notes that they're able to pull out of a coffee that they've been roasting on a, on a less expensive roaster for who knows how long. And, yeah, and it, at that point, I mean, they're not just, you know, trying to grow a business um, with they're excited about the coffee that they're roasting. And they're, they're actually able to describe the flavor notes. And, and the roasts are so well done that their clients are actually able to taste the flavor notes that the roast master is describing. And it's not just, you know, coffee that you need to put cream and vanilla hazelnut into. It's like, hey, this is a great natural Ethiopian kosher, and it's da-da-da-da-da, and flavor notes, this, you know, the berries and the chocolates, and, and it finishes with this and that, and a, or I blended it with this Guatemala natural, and yeah, it starts off with a really strong, great chocolate berry note, but it finishes with a sweet tangerine uh, acidity that's just out of this world. You start talking like that with your coffees that you roast, and then people, your clients, who maybe not be even coffee people, and they taste that, and they're like, holy cow, and then they are your customer for life, right? They just, yeah. Do you still roast coffee for fun? I do. I I do. Well, I have a coffee house too. So, I mean, I roast I roast coffee for um I I think it's important for me to keep my hand in it, right? And just know what's going on. Um it's it's easy to get wrapped up in this or that, but yeah, just getting out there and roasting. Well, you met, you met my son out there and he's 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 got the uh the R&D roaster that we're doing all our fun stuff with and uh, it's like doing this, doing that. What if I did this? What if I developed it 10 more seconds? You know, and then you cup it. So, I mean, that's why I got my Q grader. So what does, so what does evolution look like as far as, you, you know, you have that experimental roaster. How much of your time do you spend trying new things with production or little tweaks to improve Technology it, it goes flow. in phases and you know orders. I mean, I mean, just frankly speaking, we get a boatload of orders, and you kind of have an oh crap moment. How are we going to get these all out to people? You know, because most people when they buy a, a large, have a large equipment purchase, you know, it, it's a big decision. So it's it's like buying a house sometimes, you know, and you'll just it, you you'll wait three. It'll be a three to six month process sometimes. But of course, by the time you drop that deposit it's like okay i want it yesterday <laughs> and so we do we do the best we can without making mistakes you know we don't rush anything through you know and uh so when when that's happening i don't do a lot of r&d everything is like production 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 you know we get a little bit of a dip or you know kids come back from college they want to work on roasters like my son is right now then yeah, then we're having fun. And it, well, it's just fun. And it's fun to have a piece of equipment just to do stuff to and and make stuff happen and uh, see if stuff works or uh, doesn't work, you know, that kind of thing. R&D is cool. 
Because <laughs> like the older San Franciscans, no variable speed drum, no variable speed fan. Those are things that you've added since you've taken over the company and built in. You know, and a lot of that is because that's kind of what the market is demanding now. Um, and, and there's a place for that uh, it, when, with people, again, who want to play with heat application. And that's what a variable speed drum is doing is you're playing with the, your conductive heat application. Um, your variable speed fans, you're playing with your convective heat uh, um, application. And uh, being able to vary either or both of those at the same time just gives you a little bit more finesse. Again, I go back to the artist's palette. You know, you get a big palette with three colors or you get a big palette with 50 colors, you know, and you just... Um, you know, in, in the old school guys, they'd have a, a palette with three colors and they'd have to mix their own colors and kind of make what they had work. You know, now I'd say the roasters that are coming out, you know, the higher end, mid-level to higher end roasters are coming out with the ability to uh, play with that. But I also know there's a lot of mythology out there. And people hold on, you know, they'll, they'll read an expert here or an expert there. And they'll think that that will make or break their entire business model if they don't have this one thing. Well, my old, my personal San Franciscan roaster is, well, I don't know, 23, 24 years old, you know, and one of my former employees uh, won a Good Food Award on it, you know, in 2015, roasting a natural Kenyan. So, yeah, I mean, we, I would say that these roasters have always had the bones to roast excellent coffee. You know, we add a few more uh, features to it to, uh, again, um, add more, more heat application principles for someone to play with. But our roasters are always, have always been the roaster where the artisan is standing in front of the roaster using the trier and using all his or her senses to smell to hear, uh, to you know, obviously they're going to taste when they're cupping, but also to see what's going on using, again, all of their senses uh, during the roasting process. And that's where the real craft part comes in. Norbert's coming soon. What, what are your thoughts on software? <laughs> so software, let me tell a story about United States Naval Academy. Yeah. So back in the, in the early days, say 100 years ago, the Admiralty said, you know what, all of our Navy ships are using steam, but they're not using sails anymore. Why are we teaching our midshipmen how to sail a little sailboat? It's a waste of time. Take it out of the curriculum. So they took sailing out of the course of study in the United States Naval Academy. And what they found over the next few years is that as these sailors graduated and got in positions of leadership, accidents started happening at a much more frequent rate at sea. So the Admiralty put their heads together again and said, you know what? Our sailors are not learning the sea. They, to this day, sailors are sailing in little sailboats at the United States Naval Academy as part of their course of study so that they could learn the nuances of the sea. If you don't learn the nuances of roasting, 
you can have all kinds of push-button computer technology to roast coffee for you, but you're not going to really know it, and you're not really going to be able to utilize that sort of technology to its greatest effect. There are places for automation and stuff like that, and, um, and I won't fault anybody for using it in their biz business model. You know, our particular niche, though, is the person that really and genuinely enjoys the craft. Uh, what Cropster is doing is adding uh, an, an additional value where you can take other data to uh, help you further refine your roast approach and that sort of thing. And so uh, I have no problem with that unless you are only using a computer screen and none of your other senses. In that case, if you are the person who sits on the side of your roaster or behind your roaster staring at a computer screen watching a red line go over a blue line of a preloaded profile you are participating in what I call the world's slowest video game and I say that is not roasting that is just the world's slowest video game and you need to shake it up a little bit and embrace the craft okay just you know, use it all, but don't 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 get you know. Don't be the roaster that needs to needs to use blue blocker glasses because of your use of your devices. Okay, that's that's okay. Maybe it's my pet peeve, but <laughs> do you ever do you ever roast without software? Um, I have, but I don't know. I like it, but I I find it exciting when I don't have to. Like when you accidentally press start and you're like. Well, here we go. <laughs> yeah, what do you do? You just like what's going through your head? Um, I just set up a timer. A timer. And then I set up another timer on my phone when first crack hits, and then I just look at the beans, and, and then that's about it. Are you calculating just like rate of rise in your head, kind of, or just seeing yeah. on the wallow? Yeah, I just like I kind of do like basic adjustments, and then um, just like towards the end, then I just I'm like, all right, here we go. It's gonna be fine, and then. I usually save it and then I cup it and it's usually and I cup it just beside like one of our regulars and I'm like, all right, it's not too bad. So <laughs> too bad. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Grace? There was a period where Cropster went down for a couple days when we were still roasting in the back of Portola, so we had no choice. We simply had to roast without any software, and I loved it. I was mildly terrified, but like Bill was saying, I learned to look through the sight glass for the first time because I had to. And I had my phone set as a timer. So all that it was was the timer and the sight glass and hearing crack and then hearing how rapidly a coffee would crack. And then just my own intuition after doing this so many times, just my own intuition that all right, it's been about a minute 30 of development. I think we're closing in on, on the last sort of bit here. I think I'll drop it now. It was not, geez, it's a minute 55. I got to get this out. It was just let me just, I literally was feeling my way through every batch. It was fun. I mean, I loved it. Yeah, I remember when Jason and I were roasting back there. In the early days one day, I was doing something stupid, and I stood up on this 
you know, you said standing on chairs is dangerous. I think <laughs> I was standing up on a chair <laughs> trying to get a box. And I got the box and it slipped out of my hand and it just took the computer out. Like, <laughs> boom, it like smashed the computer. The screen was just toast. Like, <laughs> mid batch like in mid morning and i was trying to train jason i was like oh shit well he's like what do we do and uh, we tried to like oh we'll see if the the port on the computer works and maybe we can project the curve up onto the wall and i was like yes this is not we're just gonna go we're just gonna go old school which is really fun and i I think there's a level of into it i think everybody should do it Everybody should do it a little bit. I and I, I totally think the same thing that every barista at some point should make espresso, learn how to make espresso without a scale, without a timer, without an anything. And it just heightens your awareness on all those little tiny intangibles that you will never focus in on if you have all the so tools. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of our roasters have done it blind at least once. I think every single one of them have. Yeah, it's such a good exercise. Yeah. It's like... And it makes you that much more confident. Yeah. What I'm saying is, is don't use that, you know, that that sort of technology solely. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, and, I'm right there with and, you. And you need to, you need to use it as as a number or just as another of a myriad of of data points that you know you're absorbing uh, to you know control uh, what you want to happen inside the drum. And uh, but yeah, no, it's these are powerful tools, but no one thing is going to. Uh, y- you need you need all these data points coming at you from a lot of different directions, um, so that you can control what's going on. I mean, we had a client; uh, he's since retired. Uh, he had he was blind, and so he could not see what was going on. But to roast with him was fascinating because he starts telling you what's going on. I will say the nice thing about the San Franciscan roaster is that it is so quiet. It's like one of those kind of roasters where you have to look at the lights to make sure it's on because it's that quiet. It was so fun to listen to him because he had, he had had another brand roaster before he upgraded to the San Franciscan, and we turned it on for the first time. And as the first thing he said, it's so quiet, which he really appreciated because what he could hear that was happening in the drum. He could t- said, you know, that sounds like the Brazil. It's a softer beam, you know, that kind of a thing. Oh, there's, there is a pebble. I can hear I, there's a rock in there, you know, and just different things like that. That, And, and the way he described the different uh, aspects of different stages of the roast uh, to the way what he heard was – was it just it added a whole new dimension to where sighted people typically don't even they can hear it once it's pointed out but don't necessarily register on the radar because being sighted is such a a dominant um, uh, sense that we use in in coffee roasting so uh yeah and he, he had audio timer and a and a uh, he had a we had a magnahelic that he took the bezel off so he could feel the location of the needle. Oh, cool! Yeah, he he, dope. he he glued uh, uh, coffee beans, you know, at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, so he can measure you know the inches water column on on that. And uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty fascinating. And 
And he also has a, a great brand, and he's doing a great job. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and since he's retired, he's actually, he's, he's building uh, beautiful hardwood furniture. Wow. <laughs> the, oh, he's your kind of guy, huh? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, see, that's the thing. I mean, we, it, it's the artisans, the, the people that want to uh, jump in and have a piece of equipment that offers a really broad range of, of heat applications so that they can just have fun with the art and do that so yeah and then yeah little thing like uh, you guys getting a little one pound roaster there it's it's on cherry wood and it's just gorgeous and it's a two-tone application of you know sea foam green your 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 color and raw steel it looks like a mini me of, of your roaster <laughs> yeah that thing's bad Francis. Francis. <laughs> Francis. Francis. It is new name. So Frankie. Frankie was a twenty-five. Frankie is a twenty-five pounder, and now Francis yeah, is Francis. a one-pounder. Francis is prim and proper. Dude, Francis <laughs> is looking tight. <laughs> you excited to drive Francis home or I'm what? So excited. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. I'm gonna be driving really slow though. I think. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, that thing's yeah. awesome. Oh, and you get to roast on propane. Yeah, people ask me what's the difference between propane and natural gas. Uh, there have been a few people that you know try to decide like which is cleaner and so on. It's really hard to do because uh, you know you can, you know, propane more or less is manufactured, and your propane may have a different blend of gases in one part of a country than over another. Uh, but natural gas too, um, it can, yeah, we have a we had a client down in in the southwest. And their natural gas was really rich, you know, not a lot of impurities, and they got a really pure flame out of it. Uh, you know, up in, up near Canada, the natural gas isn't quite so, so there's a lot of contaminants. And so that's why gas companies have to put a multiplier on the gas bill. A lot of people will see a gas bill, and there's a, like, six-digit multiplier thing. Well, it's, it's because, okay... One BTUR, or, or, or sorry, 100,000 BTUR is one therm. And what you have to do is if your gas is not going to produce that, the utility has to give you a multiplier so they're not charging you, okay, for cheap, cheaper gas that won't put out that much heat. So if you have a multiplier of, you know, 0.86, then 0.86 times... Uh, the value of your gas if it was doing at one therm then you you know you basically are paying less because of that but in this one client in in the southwest they had a multiplier of like 1.2 something and so they were actually um their gas was so good that it it, it actually produced a lot more heat and so that's also another way to take into consideration where um there's going to be variations in uh, the type of BTU output that your uh, gas is going to be uh, providing uh, as well. So there are a number of factors in that way that can affect that and elevation. You know, uh, when does first crack happen at 4,000 feet or at 8,000 feet? And um, it's going to be, you know, because first crack is going to be related to the water vaporization that's happening inside the bean, right? So anyway... Um, 
and the uh, you know the water vaporization is going to well here we're almost at 5,000 feet the water vaporization I think is going to happen at 204 which I think is the boiling point here somewhere around there you know as opposed to where you guys in you know Beach City Santa Cruz <laughs> you know t you got a flat 212 degrees Fahrenheit boiling temperature yep we're just perfect you are perfect <laughs> yep Straight up sea level. <laughs> when, when people talk about tuning the flame, you know, because you see that like bright blue flame and it means you're burning really efficiently. Right. How can you manipulate that if you have some sort of impure gas source? Because you're just pulling whatever natural air, it's burning whatever air is in the space that you're in, right? So a lot of that has to do with your air fuel mixture, okay, right. and how that's going to do. And we just use your your simple traditional atmospheric burners, and so air is is you know we have a, a an orifice size where the gas is is being jetted through that orifice, and that orifice size will determine how much you know gas will get through there. It's like a carburetor jet. Yeah, kinda. exactly. Yeah, and then we, there's larger holes uh, that will uh, the natural uh, airflow will will go through there. There's a small chamber in the burner, and then basically the gas and air mix, and then you have your flame. But there's more than just gas. Okay, there's also uh, atmospheric pressure, concentration of oxygen that's happening too. Here at a higher elevation, we're not going to have the same kind of BTUs, so we might we might change our our batch sizes, our charge weights a little bit because because you're just not going to get the same BTU as you would say at elevation, uh, sea level. You can play with the orifice sizes a little bit, but here's where you can get super technical and get it everything, you know, perfectly dialed in, and yet your coffee is not going to taste necessarily any better because you know, people do not have, uh, their palate is not as sensitive as a dog's sense of smell. There's a fear factor here. I have to get everything just to this to the right T or I'm gonna lose all my customers. Okay, or it has to be it has to meet the approval of this high level, you know, cupping board or whatever. That's all fine and good and there's a place for all that, but I, I think it's important for people not to uh overstress on that. Uh because you know, start with a good coffee, uh have a good roaster, and um, you know where it's it, it's harder to scorch or tip or bake your beans. You can scorch and tip and bake your beans on any roaster that's made. Uh, it's nice to have a roaster that it's harder to do that with uh, because of the metallurgy and airflow and whatever. But on the other hand, um, you know, well, what I'm saying is that. Don't let fear be your guide in, in a lot of ways. And, and don't let an unknown, ambiguous anxiety cause some kind of a fear factor in you that would make you make a wrong decision or spend too much time on a decision that doesn't really matter too much. All that to say, back to gas. Yeah, we can tune it for your elevation and those sorts of things. And we've done that for some people who are in extreme elevations. But we're kind of like at an elevation here where the factory is, where th the range will cover high and low elevations real nicely. Um, we can 
we can change the orifice size by one or two and maybe you know you'll get a little bit more energy or, or a little less energy or whatever it is that you want to have the the impact uh, that you want but um, at the end of the day is that really necessary you know I say in 90 plus percent of the time it isn't sick knowledge <laughs> <laughs> no that's awesome because people talk about that all the time at length so in like a who like in a hyper geek world if someone wanted to play with that you get a roaster and then maybe supply them with the set of burners that have three different orifice sizes they could switch out whenever they like if they yeah. wanted to we could do that mess and, with and it. I, you, you know chris some people just have to do that because they are that is their personality that's right. how their brain works I'm like, okay, you know, like I said, as a former educator, you know, people's brains work differently, okay? And, and, and I will say this, I will acknowledge that some roaster manufacturers have a roaster that works really great with a certain personality type. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be disparaging or anything. It's just like you have Ford guys and you got Chevy guys, right? Yeah. Um, or an espresso world. There's like people who are cool with a linear classic. That's what they love. And then some people have to have a Slayer or they have to have a pressure profiling machine. And oh, I know. So, you know, I have a little coffee house too. And it's like, I've, I've had both a Slayer and, and, and a, I have a little, law, uh, what is F, FB 70? Oh yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And, and a Swift grinder. And I, I have, I have staff that's like, I have to use the lawnmowers, I'll go. And I have st the staff that says, you're nuts. I love the Slayer. You know, and it's, yeah. It's how it's how the brain works, okay? It's how people are. And it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why it's like, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't think people are dumb if they don't buy a roaster. I think that maybe they'll learn later that they should have. Okay? <laughs> but that's me, right? <laughs> no i think I, I i think you're i think you're in the zone i mean the more everything's flooded right like the markets for everything are flooded anybody can make anything like when i was a kid it was I, the little knickknacks that i see that are made now are like oh my god if i could have only manufactured that something as cool cool and as basic as like a little enamel pin you know in 1996 you had to know somebody real cool if you wanted to make enamel pins for your band. It wasn't just like a, a, a phone call away. And now, you know, anybody can make a – you could have a brand for anything. You right. Know? I could start a brand tomorrow. I could have hats, pins, shirts, socks, and the whole kit. Yeah. And it's an email away. Yeah, everything. everything's an email away. So you're you're making the same – product i.e like we're both making a roaster or we're both making apparel or we're both making shoes or whatever but depending on how you choose to make it what you choose to use and who you really want to sell it to like that's what people are going to identify with like the idea of better doesn't really exist right there's only better for you in right. the sense of you said ford and chevy like is a camaro better than a mustang i mean it's better for a chevy guy than a mustang that's for sure. Yeah. 
you know, and no amount of like road and track tests or quarter mile times or horsepower numbers is going to change that, right? If you're like a Shelby dude, you're getting you're getting the GT three fifty. It's going down, you know. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, you are, and you're going really fast in a straight line, and and that's okay, <laughs> you know. Uh, my son and I were talking about that, you know, European muscle cars versus American muscle cars, and we're just a few miles away from America's loneliest road, US 50. You know, where the nearest gas is 115 miles between gas stations, right? You can go really fast on those roads. <laughs> And nobody would know. <laughs> anyway, n- not that I did, not that I did that, ever. <laughs> what time is it? Oh, it's two. We should wrap this thing. Any? Do you want to leave us with any words of wisdom? Any from you, uh, Principal Kennedy? Oh, y- hey, you know what? Do, don't let fear be your guide. Okay, just you know, it, it's okay. Relax. Make your decision. And go with it, okay? And uh, at, at the end of the day, you want, you need to feel comfortable with what you're going to be moving forward with your life. If it's with our brand, I could say you're smarter and, you know, all that. I'd probably mean it. But to, it, it, you have to be true to yourself, right? That That's it. Don't let anxiety be your guide, okay? Just sit back be comfortable get all the data you can and then go for it oh yeah dude thank yeah. you oh, you're welcome. we'll do this again glad you guys came by oh yeah hell yeah <laughs>